You guys can go ahead and be seated. It's good to be with you again this morning. Why don't we go ahead and close our eyes and bow our heads and bow our hearts before the Lord and and pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We come with humble hearts, Lord. We come as people who desire to hear your voice and people who desire to uh, learn of you, Lord, learn of your ways. And thank you, Lord, that you lead us in the way everlasting, the way that is everlasting, Lord, the way that is good, the way that is the true way of fulfillment and joy. And we thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that by your Spirit you would speak to us, by your Spirit give us insight. Lord, anoint our ears to hear your anointed word, and we pray that you would do work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of the things that I I love about Scripture, that I love about God's word, is that it's so masterfully crafted. And it's crafted so masterfully that many of the parts of Scripture have multiple layers or levels of meaning and interpretation, and also even application. So now that doesn't mean that the Bible can mean anything that someone might want it to mean. It doesn't mean that uh, everything that people presume the Bible to mean that it means. But what it does mean is that certain sections of the scripture were crafted by God, they were inspired by God with the direct intention that there would be more than one layer of understanding, more than one layer of meaning and significance. Especially the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament was written So that at the same time it would be literal, meaning that it's historical, it's true stories of what actually happened. And at the same time it would be symbolic. And, you know, uh, much of the Old Testament serves to foreshadow the gospel and the coming of Jesus, symbolically. And there are even some sections which are allegorical. And so what that means is that the Bible is not a one-dimensional book. But it's a multi-dimensional masterpiece. In the Proverbs, God encourages us to seek wisdom as a person searches for hidden treasure. You know, how do you do that? You, you dig. You get a shovel and you dig because you want to uncover what is below the surface. You want to reveal the treasure which lies below the surface. So as we dig, as we go into these layers It's like an onion, right? There are layers, there's depth to be discovered as you dig and as you discover the scriptures more and more. So today we're going to look at a section of scripture which is both historical, meaning that it's something that actually happened, and it's also allegorical. And the reason we know it's allegorical is because the Bible tells us it's allegorical. That's the nice thing about God's word is that when there is allegory and symbolism, it makes that clear to us so we don't have to guess. So it would, be, it would be wrong, as some people say, that to say that the Old Testament is all allegorical or even mostly allegorical and not meant to be taken literally. No, the stories in the Bible are meant to be taken literally. And where they are meant to be understood allegorically, the Bible makes that clear. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4 from verse 21. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. So, we're not stretching at all to say here that this is an allegory. So as we look at this section today, first we're going to look at the story from a historical standpoint, and then we're going to look at the allegory. 
The, the title of our teaching today is A Tale of Two Sons, and that's what we're going to be focusing on. Abraham's two sons, the one from Hagar and the other from Sarah. So first of all, let's look at the story. After 25 long, frustrating years of waiting, and oftentimes feeling that they were waiting in vain, finally this little baby is born to this very old man and this very old woman. This is the child of promise. This is the miracle child whom they've been waiting for. Our text says this amazing thing. It says, the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. But it took a long time for that to happen, didn't it? Our God is faithful and he keeps his promises. Even if we are faithless, meaning that we have no faith, right? He, he remains faithful to his covenant promises because that is his character. He cannot deny himself. You know, the story of Abraham and Sarah, if you look at their story in the Bible, the majority of it is consumed by, is taken up by the story of how God gave them some promises and then they had to wait. They had to choose to walk by faith in those promises, trusting that those promises were true, even when they didn't feel like it was going to happen, even when they didn't see how it was going to work out practically. And in a way, that is a very real picture of the Christian life, isn't it? Because like Abraham and Sarah, think about this, we have been given some amazing promises in the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God receives us as his children. He forgives us of our sins. He justifies us, which means that he endows us with a status. He endows us with the status of righteousness. That is our justification before the Father. And at some point in the future, either at the end of this age or at the end of our age, whichever comes first, he will glorify us. That's the promise of the gospel. We will be glorified. We will get to take part in the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is called heaven. It's called the new Jerusalem. And not only that, but the promise of the gospel is not only everlasting life, but it is abundant life here and now. The promise of the gospel is that through the finished work of Christ on the cross, we can be reconciled to God. We can have a relationship with God, just like Abraham had a relationship with God. Not And Abraham's relationship with God, it wasn't merely a legal relationship, right? But Abraham was called the friend of God. It was a personal, close relationship. And when we enter into that relationship with God, God makes us alive spiritually. We become alive in the deepest part of our being. Whereas apart from him, we read in the scripture that we were spiritually dead, And we were empty because of our sins and our transgressions. But in him we become alive. We become a new creation. And when God places his spirit inside of us, he marks us that we are his. So that by his spirit, his spirit comes within us. That by his spirit he can lead us and guide us in his ways. What the scripture refers to as the way everlasting. You know, the way everlasting, that is God's way of living. It is living life in light of the gospel of God's grace. It's living life in light of God's love that we've come to know in Jesus Christ, in light of the kingdom of God. And, and that is, the kingdom of God is something which is here in part now, but which will reach ultimate fulfillment in a time which is yet to come. So the way everlasting is the ultimate way of joy and happiness. Proverbs 14 verse 27, it says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. 
In Hebrews 1 verse 9, I, I always love this verse. It says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above all his companions. In other words, Jesus was the happiest person in town. He was anointed with the, the oil of gladness above all his companions. And why? It tells us in the verse, it says, because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You know, the Bible tells us that holiness is, is in fact, the way to happiness. Holiness is the way to happiness. Now, many people, when they think of holiness, they would not tend to think of it that way. They would think that holiness is the way to boredom. But, but what the Bible tells us is that if you walk in the way everlasting, that is how you will be most happy, most fulfilled person that you can possibly be. Because what we know as we live life, what we experience, all of us, especially in the culture that we live in today, right, is that this instant gratification that we've gotten so used to, it only gratifies for a moment. It is instant. We get it right away, but it only lasts for a moment. In the very next moment, we're just as empty inside as we were before. You know, sin, I like to think of sin like, it's like cotton candy, right? It looks all big and delicious and satisfying, but then you bite into it and you find that there's really no substance at all and it just leaves you feeling gross and empty inside, right? So, uh, and not only does God lead us by his spirit in the way everlasting, but he promises that he's sovereign and he will redeem all things in our lives. He will use all things for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. So the point that I'm trying to make is this. Just like Abraham and Sarah, we also enter into a covenant relationship with God. And in that covenant relationship, he makes certain promises to us. And like Abraham and Sarah, we're called to walk by faith that these promises are true, even when we don't feel that they're true, even when we don't see how they're going to work out practically in our situation. We saw in our text for many weeks, Sarah did not feel like she was going to get pregnant, ever. Abraham and Sarah, they could not see how God was going to work out these promises in their lives. I mean, they're super old, they're living in tents, they're homeless, and they don't have any kids. They don't see any way this is going to practically work out. They don't see any way that this could actually happen. And there are times when you and I, as we walk with God, right, in a relationship with God, we don't feel the promises of the covenant. We don't always feel that we are forgiven. Sometimes we doubt whether or not we're actually saved at all, right? Sometimes we don't feel the Spirit of God within us. We don't always see how God's way, the way everlasting, is the, ulti is the way of ultimate happiness for us and true fulfillment. We don't always see that. We don't always see how God is going to use a particular event or circumstance in our life for our good or for his glory. But that's what it means to walk by faith. That's the picture we have of Abraham and Sarah. And the amazing thing for us that we get to see here in the birth of Isaac is this. We know the whole story, right? We know how this story is going to end. We know that Sarah and Abraham do get their baby. We know how, uh, you know, this, from this baby a nation will be born. We know that truly this land that Abraham is living on, God is going to give this to him and it's going to be the homeland for this new nation. And we know that from that nation, the Messiah will indeed come. But when Abraham and Sarah were living this out, they didn't know that stuff. They couldn't see how this was all going to end up, or how the promises would be fulfilled. 
And the fact is, and the point is this, Abraham and Sarah are a picture for us of the Christian life. And the fact that God keeps all his promises, the, God, the fact that God kept his promise to them, that's a message to us that God will indeed keep all his promises that are encompassed in the gospel. Because he's a faithful God who keeps all his covenant promises. And even if we are faithless, meaning that we falter in our faith, as Abraham and Sarah did, if we falter in our trust in the validity of those promises, as Abraham and Sarah did, he will still remain faithful to keep those promises because that's his nature and he cannot deny himself. So if you're here this week and you say, you know, I don't feel cleansed and pure and washed clean on the inside. I don't feel forgiven for the wrong that I've done. I don't see how God could use the things that are happening in my life for my good or for his glory. I don't see how following God's way in this situation is actually going to leave me more happy and more fulfilled. Well, just remember the, the, that God brought to fulfillment everything he promised to Abraham and Sarah. And in the same way, God will keep and fulfill every promise that he makes to you in the gospel. And one of the parts of scripture that I love to reflect on is found in Revelation chapter 15, and then it happens again in chapter 16, where we read that really at the end of all things, right, at the very last days, what we read is that there's this great multitude in heaven before the throne of God. And they're crying out this phrase, they say this phrase, just and true are your ways, O God, O King of the nations. Other translations render it as, righteous and true are your judgments. Now think about that. At the end of all things, here are these people in heaven, and they have real perspective, right? They're looking back over everything that's happened in history. And what do they say? They say, righteous and true are all your judgments, O King of the nations. Just and true are your ways. You know, just as we can look back and see how God dealt with Abraham, how God fulfilled all his promises to Abraham and Sarah, they are able to look back at our lives. And they're able to see how God kept all his promises to us. And their conclusion at the end of all things is to say, just and true are your ways. Righteous and true are your judgments. They don't say, uh... God, you know, that thing that you let happen to Nick Cady back in 2010, that just really wasn't cool. You know, that wasn't fair. Uh, That wasn't just. That really didn't work for his good at all. Now, what was that? No, they don't say that. They look back on everything with full perspective that we don't have, that we can't have, right? Just as we look back on Abraham and Sarah, and what do they say? They say, God, looking back on all that you've done, we see that all your ways, everything you did, it was fair, it was right, it was just, it was true. Isn't that cool? You know, this is the hope that we have, that we see in the story of the birth of Isaac, the promised son. It's a picture, a foreshadowing of how God will keep all of his covenant promises of the gospel to us who believe. No matter how you might feel, about it or doubt it now. So Abraham and Sarah, they're so happy to have this child, right? And what do they do? In their joy, they obey God. They circumcise him on the eighth day like God told him to. They name him Isaac, which is what God told them to name him. Isaac means laughter, and it reminds us that God always gets the last laugh, right? And now Abraham and Sarah, they once laughed at God, scoffing in unbelief, but now they're laughing with God with joyful hearts. But as joyful and as wonderful as this event is, 
we, we are reminded that Abraham has another son. He has another son, and that complicates things a little bit, right? His other son is named Ishmael, and if you remember the story, Ishmael was the child who, who uh, resulted from Abraham's adulterous relationship with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. Now, it wasn't like Abraham went out and had an affair. What happened was that Sarah, in a moment of, of desperation, troubled by the reality of the situation that she was in, not seeing how God could ever practically fulfill his promise to her or give them, the, give them a son in her old age, she devised a plan. If Abraham would just sleep with Hagar, my servant, then Hagar can have the baby and she'll give it to me and then that can be my baby and that will be the child of the promise. That child can be the fulfillment of God's promise and God can bless that child and, and keep all his promises in him. It was an interesting plan, but the problem was that it wasn't God's plan. God knew exactly what he was doing and he didn't need Sarah meddling in the situation and trying to make it happen apart from his plan and apart from his will. So at this point, here's Ishmael. He's grown up in a house with his mom and his dad and his dad's wife. That's a tough situation to grow up in. You can imagine a lot of tension in that household. At this point, Ishmael is somewhere between 15 and 17 years old. Now, Abraham, he has these two sons from two women. That's his situation. In verse 8, we read that when Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a great party. Now, in those days, in that culture, this was a really big deal, and here's why. You know, children would nurse up until the age of three or four years old. Uh, when Rosemary and I worked in the refugee camp in Denbertson, I, I remember there was this, um, this family from Armenia. And, you know, there's this big push in America. You see it in Time magazine. You see it in the news, even this last couple weeks, um, because of what happened in Boulder with this. You know, there's a big push in America right now for mothers to be able to breastfeed in public uh, if they want to. Well, you could say that there are a lot of cultures actually in the world where this is not even an issue. This is just what they do whenever, wherever. You know, I've, I was uh, preaching in some places in Ukraine outdoors, right? There's like you know, a couple hundred people. We did a concert, and uh, there's a ton of people just nursing babies at this thing. So, you know, and these people have no idea that they're being progressive by America's standards. Uh, they're just living in the, these little villages, and this is just what they do, right? They're not doing it because they're being progressive. So, anyway, we're in the refugee camp, and we're sitting in this room talking to this Armenian family, and we're drinking coffee, and we're talking about the gospel, and then this this boy walks in the room. He's like four or five years old, and he walks over to his mom and just starts nursing. And I just about fell out of my chair. Like, <laughs> I was like, this is like super shocking, right? I was like, whoa. I was like 19 years old at the time. I was like, <laughs> I was freaked out, you know? But, uh, but I came, what I came to know is that in some developing countries, right, it's still common for children to nurse three, four, five years old because infant mortality rates are very high. And that's the most, most uh, dangerous time for a child, really, you know, because their, their system is weak. So they, they nurse them because they don't have proper medical care. They don't always have food. And uh, so nursing is a way to keep their children healthy and their immune system strong. So think back to Abraham and, and uh, Isaac being weaned here. 
uh, the weaning of a child was a big deal because it meant that this child was now viable. It meant that this child was now strong enough and healthy enough to go off mother's milk, and it meant that they were going to survive. So this was a really big thing. It was a celebration. They were saying, Lord, thank you for bringing this child through infancy alive, through this perilous stage. So we've got this little boy, Isaac, right? Three or four years old. And this is, his, this is kind of like his big birthday party, right? This is his big day. You know, uh, my son just had a birthday, and he looked forward to it for about 11 and a half months. You know, <laughs> he was planning this party for about that long. So, uh, it, you know, his birthday party was a big deal to him. He was super excited about it. And you can imagine a little guy like Isaac, super excited about his birthday. Uh, and look what happens at this birthday party. Uh, Ishmael, this teenager... He shows up, and he starts mocking Isaac. Now, we're talking about a 15-year-old, 16-year-old guy harassing a 3-year-old at his big birthday party, okay? And making him cry. And, and some of you are moms in here, and you're like, yeah, I totally know what Sarah's feeling. Like, I'm mama bear, and if some punk kid comes in to my house and starts teasing my little boy and making him cry at his birthday party, then some heads are going to roll, right? And not to mention if that teenage boy is your husband's other kid from another woman. This is like how every episode of Cops starts out, right? And uh, you know what makes this uh, even more striking is this word where we read that Ishmael laughed at or mocked Isaac. This word Uh, commentators say that this can also possibly mean that he was physically harming him. He was, you know, hurting this little boy on his big day at his party. And Sarah is fed up. And she tells Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son. There's no way that that boy is going to share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now Abraham isn't happy about this. Why? Because Abraham loves Ishmael. This is his boy. This is his son. He raised him. He taught him stuff, you know? And God speaks, though, to Abraham, and he says, Abe, you got to listen to your wife on this one. Now, isn't that interesting? Because some people have this idea that, that a Christian marriage is all about a subservient wife and her domineering husband. She doesn't speak unless spoken to, you know? And, but, but notice this. I, I think this is interesting. God says to Abraham, Listen to your wife. She's right on this one. Now, although, you know, the biblical model is not that a wife should be the head of her husband, nevertheless, a wise man will consider what his wife has to say. In this case, God told Abraham specifically, he said, Abe, listen to Sarah on this one. She's right. Ishmael's got to go. But he says, I'm going to take care of him. And I'm going to make him into a great nation. He's going, to, he's going to be okay. I'm going to look out for him. So Abraham, the next day, he gets a skin of water. That's probably three or four gallons of water and some bread. And he gives it to Hagar and he sends them on their way. Now Hagar and Ishmael, they're walking. This is the desert. They're walking in the hot desert sun. We don't know if they had any direction, any destination at all. But as they're walking, they run out of water. And it's a scary thing to be in the desert and run out of water. I don't know if you've ever been hiking and run out of water. I have. But, I mean, in the desert, it's a whole lot more scary. So they're, you know, 
what we read is that Ishmael gets so exhausted from the heat, from the lack of water, that he essentially passes out, you know. So what we see is that Hagar is pushing this teenage boy, pushing him under a bush so that he'll get some shade, and then she goes off a little bit away because she's sure that he's going to die, and she doesn't want to have to watch him die. There's nothing she can do. She's at this point feeling totally helpless. She's a single mom. She's unemployed. She has no food, no water to give to her son who's going to die. And there's absolutely nothing she can do. So she goes a ways off because she doesn't want to watch him die. She doesn't want to listen to his moaning. Because we get the feeling that he's moaning here. And she, she lifts up her voice and she just weeps in sorrow and despair. And we read that the Lord heard her cry. She, he, the Lord heard Ishmael's moaning. And he speaks to Hagar and he says, What troubles you, Hagar? Now, of course, he knows, but what he's showing is that he cares. He cares about this single mom who has a son in an adulterous relationship. He cares about this boy who was cruel to his little brother. Despite the bad things they've done, God still loves them, God still cares about them, and God still hears their cry. Isn't that amazing? Did you know that God hears the prayers of people who, who don't walk in his ways, who don't, hear, don't have a relationship with him? He is the God who hears. That's what Ishmael's name means. God hears. You know, I have a pretty large extended family, and most of my family don't walk with the Lord. And oftentimes, you know, when something happens to them, they will, you know, ask me to pray for them. And they'll say something like, we know that you're close with the big guy upstairs. You know, that's, their, that's how they refer to God. Uh, so please pray for this thing that's going on with us. And I'll tell them, of course I'll pray for you. But I want you to know that God will hear you if you call out to him. Even if you are estranged from your heavenly father, he is still the God who hears. And he will hear you if you call out to him. He still loves you and he still cares about you. And God showed Hagar a well. It says he opened her eyes to see a well. And she was able to go there and get water and revive Ishmael. Now the question is, did God make this well appear miraculously out of nowhere? Or was it there the whole time, but he opened her eyes to see it? I think either one's possible. But because of the wording here, it seems to me that God opened Hagar's eyes to see something that was already there. It had been there all along, but she had failed to see it. And I pray that God would do the same thing in my life and in your life too. That he would open our eyes to see those things that we need that would be a blessing to us, which are right before us, but which we're failing to see, failing to recognize. So that's the story. Now let's talk about the allegory. Paul the Apostle, referring to this very story, he says this in Galatians chapter 4. Turn there with me if you will. Galatians chapter 4 from verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One of them is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul the Apostle here, he's speaking to people who had gotten caught up in a legalistic form of Christianity. And what he's doing is he's calling them back to the centrality of the message of grace, the message of the gospel. The gospel of God's grace is that God loves you and God saves you and God blesses you, not because of your merits, not because of who you are or what you do, but simply based on his abundant love for you. God doesn't love you because of who you are or what you do or how well you perform. He just loves you, period. He doesn't bless you because you earned those blessings. He just blesses you, period. You know, the early church father, Tertullian, he said this, Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two opposite errors, legalism and liberalism. Legalism says that God saves you, accepts you, and even beyond that, that God blesses you, according to and on the basis of your good works, your performance, your holiness, your level of devotion. Liberalism, on the other hand, says that God loves you and accepts you and blesses you based on who you are in Christ. It gets that part right. But it says this, well then, so since that's true, then it doesn't matter how we live. You don't need to strive for holiness. You can just live like a hog and die like a dog because you've got a get-out-of-hell-free card. And that's what Jude refers to in, in his letter when he says he speaks of people who use the grace of God as a license to sin. Kind of like I got a driver's license. That's my permission to drive. They say, hey, God's grace, I've got a license to sin. You know, each of these two errors is always attacking the gospel. And both of these take away from the life-changing power of the gospel. The legalist takes away from the beauty of the grace of God. That God saves sinners. That is, that is the summation of the gospel. God saves sinners. That God shows favor, not because we deserve it, but in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. And, and a legalistic person essentially denies the finished work of Christ on the cross as sufficient. They say it's not enough. When, when Jesus says, it is finished, they say, no it's not. They say there's something that I need to add to that. Now the liberalists, on the other hand, they show no regard, no reverence for the sacrifice of Christ, for the weight of sin. They show no reverence for the holiness and majesty of God. And, and in this case, you know, they probably have, it means that probably they've never truly repented of their sin. It means that truly they haven't made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. And for this reason, the New Testament writers actually question whether either the legalist or the liberalist has really understood the gospel at all. And even questions whether their faith in their aberrant form of the gospel will actually save them. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith 
that remains alone. And essentially that is the main thrust of Paul's letter to the Galatians, that the gospel is neither legalism nor liberalism. The gospel is neither moralism nor relativism. Put it this way, the gospel is neither religion nor irreligion, but it's something else entirely. A third way of relating to God through grace. And here's where the allegory comes in, right? Look at Sarah and Hagar. Sarah and Hagar represent two different ways of approaching God. Sarah, let me say that again. Sarah and Hagar represent two different ways of approaching God. The one seeks to work for or merit or earn God's blessings by striving in the flesh, by striving in their own strength, by their own effort. The other simply allows God to bless you and fulfill his promises to you in his way and in his timing. It's a humble surrender of faith and trust in his goodness, in his character, in his sovereignty. And it is the way that God, uh, is the way that, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, let me say this. As you do that, that's where we see Abraham and Sarah respond to God. Remember how they responded to God? Out of their joy? In obedience, right? In obedience when God speaks. In response to who he is and the love and grace that he's shown. You know, Sarah and Abraham are a picture of that. They obeyed God's word to them out of their joy for what God had done for them. They named their son Isaac. They circumcised him on the eighth day. They didn't receive uh, grace and just receive the promise, but they responded to that promise. They responded to that grace. They responded to God's goodness by obeying his word to them. And that's something which we'll see continue in upcoming chapters as well. Abraham and Sarah's obedience to the word of God was not their means of, of obtaining the promise. It wasn't how they obtained the blessing. It was totally by God's grace, according to his faithfulness, to his covenant promise. But their obedience to God was their response to God's grace. It was the overflow of a heart that was full of gratitude and thankfulness, a heart that was overwhelmed with joy at the grace that God had shown them. The son of the slave woman was the fruit of trying to manipulate God and finish the work of the Spirit and the power of the flesh. But the son of the promise was the fruit of God's grace and mercy alone, his unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. You know, just as Hagar was a slave woman, so in the same way as our text tells us, those who live in a legalistic relationship with God, they are slaves to their own legalistic rule. You know, the Bible says if you live by the law, you die by the law. And, you know, she's a picture, Hagar's a picture of us of striving in our own efforts and that it's impossible to merit and earn the blessing of God uh, or the promise of God in our own efforts. So what Paul says in this allegory is this, just as Abraham cast out Hagar, so you and I, we must cast out all legalistic ideas, every legalistic attitude or tendency or practice in our life. We need to get rid of them. Get them out of your mind. Get them out of your life. Imagine this. Imagine that I take out David Lewin for dinner. And I say, David, I know this nice place. It's super nice. So get out your, you know, tuxedo because we're going out to this nice place. It's upscale. So I invite him and, and we go and I say, David, you are my guest, man. Order whatever you'd like. So 
he takes my offer pretty seriously. He's ordering all kinds of stuff, fancy drinks and appetizers. He gets the steak and the lobster. He gets one of those flambe things, you know, where they light it on fire. And it's great, you know. We're having an awesome time. At the end, we're stuffed, we're feeling good, and the waiter brings the check. You know how it is when you go to a restaurant. It's like when you're ordering stuff, it's like money's not an issue. But then when the check comes, you're like, well, how did that happen, you know? So... The, the waiter brings the check and the bill is $15,000. I said, it's a nice place. We're wearing tuxedos. So, so David grabs the check out of the waiter's hand and he pulls out his wallet and he throws down his credit card and he says, you pay your part, I'll pay my part. We're going Dutch, 50-50. So I tell him, David, I invited you, man. You're my guest. And by the way, I know you're poor. I know you can't afford this. In fact, David, let me tell you this. The meal's already paid for. They have my card on record here. I have an account here. They just charged it already. I took care of it, you know? It's paid for. It's done. But David, he's so stubborn, right? And he hands the waiter his card, and he says, do it anyway. I don't care. So the waiter, he he says, all right, I'll try. He runs back, and he runs the card, and he comes back, and he says, sir, I regret to tell you that your card was declined. We called the bank. They said that you have insufficient funds. David says, no problem. I've got an American Express card too. Check this out. So he hands it to the waiter and the waiter comes back and he says, I'm sorry, sir. Insufficient funds. Another card and another card. Insufficient funds. Insufficient funds. And at this point, I'm pleading with David. I'm, David, don't be dumb, man. Don't do this. This is ridiculous. Just let me pay for you. You don't have this kind of money, but I have more than enough. This is like pocket change to me. I find this on the, under the seat of my car, man. And he refuses, though. He says, no, I insist. I'm going to pay my own way. So eventually, the owner of the business calls the police. And they, the police come, and they arrest David for insufficient funds. And they take him to court, and he has a trial, and he gets sentenced to life in prison with no parole. And all the while, he was my guest. I invited him. But he insisted on grabbing that check and paying his own way, even though he had no means to do so. He had, no, he had insufficient funds for that. And he ended up wasting away in prison forever. That is the essence of legalism and grace. All of us have run up a bill that we by no means have the uh, sufficiency to pay. We, we don't have what it takes to pay that bill. And we have a Heavenly Father, though, who has already paid that bill for us. And we can either choose to reject that gift and stubbornly insist that we're going to pay our way ourselves, which is really the height of, falliness, of folly and foolishness. Because like David, we have insufficient funds. Or the other option is that we can graciously receive that gift of God's grace. We can simply respond to that grace with a life of thanksgiving and appreciation. You know, it says, cast out the slave woman. Cast out every legalistic attitude, every legalistic tendency in your life it, through which you're seeking to manipulate God and merit and earn his favor and blessings. You know, something that happens when you try to relate to God based on your own goodness is that when you're doing a good job, when you're being a moral person, when you're doing great, you become self-righteous, right? You think you're pretty awesome. But when you fail, and you inevitably will, you feel condemned. 
But the message of the gospel is that you can be set free from that. You can be set free from your own self-justification, your self-righteousness, and your self-condemnation. Because your justification is found in Christ. And in him there is no more condemnation. So be a child of the free woman who lives by grace. Who lives according to faith and the promise of God. Who lives by trust in the goodness of God. And the plan of God for her life. But the allegory doesn't end there. There's one more part to it. Not only do Hagar and Sarah represent opposite ways of approaching God. But Ishmael and Isaac represent Two opposing forces which are at work in the heart of a believer. The flesh and the spirit. And the mockery that took place in this story from Ishmael toward Isaac, this happens in our hearts constantly. Galatians 5.17 it says, The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish You know, there's this constant battle going on within a person who's been born again between two conflicting natures, right? Between the old man and the natural man. Between the new man that we become in Christ and the the old man who we were apart from him naturally. Between two conflicting sets of desires, the desire to please the Lord and the desire to fulfill the lusts of our flesh. And the question for us is, which will dominate? Which will win? The flesh or the spirit? The Bible says that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So not only do we need to cast out the legalistic attitudes and tendencies which discount the grace of God, but we must also cast out Ishmael. We must cast out the flesh. The Bible refers to this as putting to death the old man. Like in Colossians chapter 3, it says put to death the old man. The natural man who we were before we were born again and became new creations in Christ. Before the Spirit of God began working within us. How do we do that practically? How do we practically cast out Ishmael and put to death the old man? Here's how. We do what Abraham did. We give him no provision. Didn't you find it interesting? Didn't it strike you a bit weird that Abraham is this super rich guy, right? He's loaded. He's got flocks, he's got herds, he's got stuff. Um, But he sends off this boy, his son, and all he does is give him a loaf of bread and a few gallons of water. He doesn't give him a credit card. He doesn't give him a Ford Explorer. He doesn't give him anything, right? Say, here's some bread, here's some water, see you later, go have fun in the desert forever. You know? Well, why would he do that? Well, because in following with this allegory, here's the way that we practically go about putting to death the old man, putting to death our flesh, so that the Spirit can control our lives. It's by doing this. You make no provision for the flesh. Romans 13, verse 14, it says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God's Word says this in in Galatians 6. It says, Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will reap. For one sows to his own flesh, and from the flesh reaps corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What that means is that the things that you or I fill our time with, the things that you and I fill our minds with, they're like seeds which are planted in the soil of our souls, and they will bear fruit. Imagine two dogs. This is my last analogy. Imagine two dogs. A black dog and a white dog. The white dog represents life and joy and the black dog represents death 
At any given moment, you and I, we are feeding one of those dogs. And whichever one you feed, that one gets bigger and stronger. You know, the black dog, though, he's aggressive and he's destructive. And when you feed him, you know what he does? He attacks the white dog. And not only does he attack the white dog, but he turns on you and sinks his fangs into you and tears you apart. But if you don't feed him, if you don't make provision for him, he'll just get weaker and smaller until he becomes like a little, little yappy dogs, you know, that nips at your ankles and just makes a lot of noise. He's annoying, but he has no power. And the question is this, which dog will you choose to feed? Which dog will you cause to grow by making provision for it? At any moment, any given moment, we're feeding one of them. The question is, which one will it be? So the message of this allegory is this. Cast out the slave woman and her son. Cast out Hagar. Cast out all legalistic attitudes and tendencies and embrace the grace of God. And cast out Ishmael. Cast out all your fleshly tendencies because they lead to death. Make no provision for the flesh, but rather sow to the Spirit, that from the Spirit you may reap life. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the provision that you have made for us. We thank you that in Christ we are justified. Thank you for all the promises of the gospel. Thank you that all the promises of the gospel are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you truly, as you fulfilled all your promises to Abraham and Sarah, Lord, you will fulfill all your promises to us. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to cast out all legalistic tendencies, but Lord, help us also to cast out the flesh. Lord, that, the, that your spirit could control our lives. And we know that, Lord, that ultimately is for our good and for your glory. So Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit today. Let your spirit fall upon this place, that we might be empowered to walk by faith on the way everlasting as you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.